mortgages can be a dry subject. So here's your oasis in the desert. It's the podcast that will get you talking and thinking, or more likely drinking. The Lennon to his McCartney, the Burt to his Ernie. It's the one and only Mortgage Stew and his sidekick Martin at the LM Experience. Hi there, welcome to the LM Experience. Today it's episode 67. Good morning, Martin. Good morning, Stu. How are you? I'm all right. Yourself? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. I think summer's over, looking out the window. It's I raining, think it's it gone. Is. Yeah. It's the, uh, it's the highway to winter. Um, anyway, we've got some sunshine at the end of this line here. We've got uh, our first dialing guest ever. We're very lucky to have Vanessa Warwick, who is a landlord and co founder of Property Tribes. Uh, are you there, London calling Vanessa? Yes, I am. It Thank works. You very much it for works. The welcoming me along. <laughs> Uh, the wonders of modern technology. Thank you very much for taking the time out. We, as I said, we've never done this before, Vanessa. We've always had uh, guests in the studio, but um, appreciate it. everyone's very, very busy at the moment. And obviously, with what's going on in the background, it's hard for people to get into London. So, thank you for making uh, the time to uh, to call into us today. And obviously, you've got quite a high profile in the property world. But I'm guessing that you didn't start in the property world. And the first question that we always ask our guests is, you know, what what was your journey? Where were you originally? How did you end up getting into property? What's the starting point? Well, how far <laughs> back do you want to go? How far back <laughs> do you feel comfortable going? Because <laughs> um, you, you, you had an interesting career at the start. You, you were um, a TV presenter, weren't you? That's right, yes. I was a, a, a VJ on MTV um, from um, 19... Oh, let me get this right. 1987 <laughs> to 1997. So it was a real boom time, wasn't it, for MTV? That's where it really kicked off. It, it really was. It was such a privilege to be there during that time because I actually joined about six months after they launched in London mm-hmm. um, at the famous Mandela Street Studios. Uh, and it was a very small team. And I started there as a production assistant and, and worked my way up. So it really was the golden era of MTV coming over from the US to Europe. So, yes, I like to say I went from rock and roll <laughs> to bricks and mortar. Because, but did, did, so just um, going back to that, Vanessa, did, did you do that with the intention of being a presenter or did that just happen? You, f- you fell into that role? It was a very, very strange thing. Um, my agent rang me up on um, a Monday morning. I was temping around London and I'd been managing a band and I'd been away with them all weekend. We'd been um, using downtime in studios at like four in the morning to record. We'd done a gig up in Leeds. I was absolutely exhausted. <laughs> and my agent called and said, there's a temporary job at MTV. They only need you for one day. Will you go in? And I said, you know what, I'm so exhausted, it's raining, I don't really feel up to it. And my agent, and I'm so, so grateful to her, said, Vanessa, go. It's a very exciting place, there's opportunity there. So I went, um, and the rest is history. I ended up staying for for over 10 years. Um, They liked me, I guess, and (laughs) I just worked my way up behind the scenes until I became a presenter. what, what, What show were you doing? I was doing the heavy rock show, which okay. is called Headbangers Ball. That was 10 p.m. on a Sunday evening, mine. That was 10 p.m. Was. I, was, was. I was in bed by then. I'm sure you were, I'm, mate. I'm, I'm, not sure rock, you were. I'm not rock and roll. No, not but rock and roll. it was, I mean, obviously 
just so you know, Vanessa, myself and Martin are similar vintage, but there's a bit of a gap. Between. <laughs> We've never quite discussed what he is. But <laughs> it, it was that sort of time for when, really when, I mean, I'm not going to big up Rupert Murdoch, but the whole thing around when satellite TV in the UK was really taking off, wasn't it? And then I think certainly for, I was probably about, probably about, suppose when, really when MTV Europe started up. So it was a big thing mm. to everyone when it came around and to have something like that where you had really something that was kind of based in the UK at that point was massive from that sort of point of view. So I think that was... It was, and it was so exciting because mm. whether you were watching in Moscow, Berlin, London, Amsterdam, you saw the same thing. Mm. Um, and that's what gave it such an international flavour. And I think why it was so exciting because we were able to expose so much music to so many different people that perhaps hadn't had the opportunity to access it before mm, definitely and so what's so what happened after um 97 uh vanessa what uh what, well, what, what was the, a career change mtv cancelled all the specialist music shows so um i think six or seven were um cancelled so i essentially lost my job um and i i been in the same thing for a very long time uh, and I'd had a very specific niche in life and there weren't too many of those other niches around mm -hmm. um, being the presenter of a rock show so I had to reinvent <laughs> myself um, and basically I developed my producer and director skills and I started working um, behind the scenes I ended up um, producing and directing a lot of music videos um, and I guess my main claim to fame is that I directed Motorhead's 25th anniversary concert at Brixton Academy. Wow. And I also produced a huge um, Latin pop music special for Channel 4, which I conceived, produced, directed and filmed in Miami. Um, and it featured all the main Latino artists who were coming through, like uh, Enrique Iglesias and Ricky Martin and uh. Christina Aguilera and Jennifer Lopez. So, um, I, yeah, I just went behind the scenes and um, just produced and directed and enjoyed uh, having a very creative time because mm -hmm. obviously, you know, working in, in music programming is, is very, very creative. Which is um, which is part of the reason why people go into that, um, uh, and it, you know I've, I've got friends and clients in in the music industry, and um, whilst it's hard work and, and creating a you know uh, a festival or a concert is is very very stressful. Having just watched the Woodstock '99 documentary on uh, Netflix, um, it's um, it's not an easy job to say the least. But there is a degree of creativity there as well. Did that lead you then into property? Because that's is that the next evolution for you, um, Vanessa? Yes, it was really. I mean, I became an accidental landlord in 1992 when I couldn't let my flat out in London because it had a defective lease and I wanted to move somewhere nearer and to where I worked and bigger. Um, so I, I let it out to music industry friends and became an accidental landlord. And I guess the real catalyst for change was when I met my husband. Um, he was a cameraman. Uh, and we were working very, very long hours. Um, we got the commission to record um, Dido's world tour mm -hmm. for her Life for Rent album. So we were flying all over the world um, with her on all her tours. Um, and, you know, one day we weren't on holiday at the time. And my husband said, look, you know, the, the scene is changing. YouTube's coming along. Commissions are getting harder. Let's do something where we can... Um, in, enjoy a life of doing our own thing because we're both very outdoorsy people we love traveling mm -hmm. 
Um, we love being outdoors. We love having our own adventures. Um, and he said, how does property sound to you? And I said, okay. And I had, I didn't even know what the interest rate was on my own mortgage. <laughs> I didn't even know how much my flat in London was worth, my second flat that I was living in. So I, I got a valuation and I, I paid 80,000 for it. And 15 years later, I had it valued at 340,000. Wow. <laughs> so my husband said, right, let's do an equity release and build our portfolio. And that's what we did starting in 2004. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, isn't it, when you said that you didn't know what your mortgage was or, or what the property was worth. And, and that's how a lot of people's attitude to property was 20 odd years ago. Mm. Um, and then and then the, the buy to let uh, market began to expand. And then you had the, the property porn programs on TV quite regularly. And then it became a huge focus for people, didn't it? What's my house worth? What can I do with it all did, this unused um, equity? It just shows how financially illiterate... Mm. Um, people are yeah, and yeah. it's not taught in schools nope. um, I had to educate myself about mortgages finance um, leverage all of the things that you need to understand how to stack deals I do think it's funny though because I, I absolutely loathed, loathed maths at school <laughs> but when I got into property I suddenly got very interested in maths because the numbers never lie to you in property um, if you put the right input into a calculation you'll get the correct answer so i really love that 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 the numbers don't lie yeah but it's, it's more interesting maths isn't it when it's linked maybe to something financial with a goal at the end of it as opposed to algebra or Pythagoras, <laughs> <laughs> which didn't do a lot for me either vanessa i'll be honest well with you. no i think the thing is that you can focus on things don't you as you progress i mean i, I took gcse maths twice once at night school because it, got it, neither it of just them. did not go into my head whilst i was actually at school at mm. all it didn't make any sense no. and yet that was the thing when i started to work with him finance a bit more then suddenly it just all clicked it made sense it was just that yeah. i needed to have a purpose for it for it to reach my brain in the right way so wh that where, was, where was that first buy to let then uh, vanessa was, was it london it was yep. most of our portfolio um was started in london uh, essentially i took out a buy to let mortgage on my flat in finsbury park um, redeemed my residential mortgage. I had a large chunk of cash left over. Um, used some of that to buy a um, four-bed house in Guildford, and um, then I used the rest of the money as uh, you know seed money for our portfolio. And and these were the days of uh, you know the go-go, easy to get hold of money. <laughs> I remember yeah. signing um, one document to get a get a mortgage. Seriously, yeah. it was that easy to get to get finance. So. Um, you know, we built our portfolio pretty quickly over the space of about, uh, I would say, five to six years, um, being able to add value to properties, refinance them, um, and then, you know, pull out some cash and go again. Uh, we soon realised that flats in London, um, they're great, but, you know, they came with the service charges. Mm. And <laughs> that was a real you know, illuminating point for me when I remember one year uh, on the 1st of um, January, I got service charge demands, I think to the tune of 25,000 mm, wow. in total. And then I thought, uh, yes, okay, uh, I need to rethink this. And that's mm. when I became interested in freehold houses. Mm -hmm. So we then moved our strategy to buying houses in what I call the M3, M4 corridor. So yeah places like High Wick and Basingstoke, new towns with good commuter links, 
And then I guess the final part of the portfolio building was we moved into holiday lets around 2008, 2009, and we have two South Coast holiday lets. So I've not bought anything since 2009. That's interesting. Um, just kind of consolidated yeah. what I've got. Yeah. But you, you, you were ahead of the curve there on the holiday lets. Um, sort of 10, I was. 10 or 15 years, because, you know, that's all the rage. I did. I did. Been doing this one this morning for a client. It is all the rage at the moment, and certainly off the back of COVID, I think it was a big market switch to to the second home, holiday yeah. home, Airbnb kind of arrangement. So well done for for that, Vanessa. We should listen to you more often. Then really, you're a pioneer. Well, I, I, if I could just say, I think you know one of the things that I saw happening around 2008 was a great um, love and and getting back in touch with our wonderful coast you know mm. we had programs like coast we had the launch of coast magazine um and i think it's i can parallel it to the times we're in now because in 2008 we were going through a financial crisis mm. and when that happens people look to nostalgia yeah. to feel better yeah that's definitely. what's happening today yeah i mean as we speak um, and when that happens, people look to their own childhoods and they think, well, what made me happy when I was a child? And they started to think about those wonderful coastal British holidays mm. where you had donkey rides and candy floss and sandcastles and fish and chips. And, you know, that was part of the renaissance of the great British seaside holiday and indeed holiday lets. Yeah, because I think, I think as well, there's been certainly during the pandemic side of things as well. I mean, I, I basically live almost opposite the Isle of Wight, so I've always kept a close eye on Isle of Wight property prices. <laughs> Sounds daft, but I've always viewed it as being the retirement place eventually. God knows why. But it, I've noticed certainly in the pandemic, suddenly the prices on the Isle mm. of Wight have gone through the roof because now there are more people that have started working from home or they've got the scope to be able to only go in the office a couple of days a week. So people making those choices now to relocate to places that they always dreamed they once would i think the whole thing about the pandemic was that made people refocus on when they were going to do it and it's brought forward some of those plans a bit I, earlier i think i think also uh, vanessa you very eloquently um expressed um what's perfect about the english summer holiday on the coast and on the beach and the donkeys and the ice cream and as i look back now thinking i don't remember as a kid anything about the weather I just mm -hmm. remember some good times. I think it's the, the parents that get hung up on the weather and the insistence of flying somewhere hot for two weeks where the kids don't really care. Yeah, they just want the memories. So I think you saw, I think British English Tourist Board could do well to take you on board, then, Vanessa. <laughs> do, some, do some marketing for them. So back to property. Did Obviously, you stopped in 08, 09 in terms of buying. Had you, had you reached your El Dorado? Had that given the lifestyle that you wanted? Was that a conscious decision not to buy anymore? Well, I think, you know, we, we, we had to find our way through um, the, the 2008 financial mm. crash, mm. Um, which was, was a challenge. I won't deny it. I had a lot of properties. They were quite highly leveraged. Um, so, yeah, I, I had to just hang in there, basically, mm. uh, which we managed to do. Uh, and we've just kind of moved forwards. And Around 2009, that was when property tribes came into existence. Um, and interestingly enough, it was never started as a commercial entity. Um, one day I just said to my husband, um, you know, uh, there's these rudimentary forums around, but then they don't seem to be very professional. And I mm -hmm. regard being a landlord as a profession, a professional activity. I said, you know, I'd like to 
go on a professional forum. And he said, well, look, why, why don't I set you up on some free software and, and, and you can just chat to all your property friends there, mm-hmm. which he did set me up on some free software called Ning. We called it Property Tribes because of tribal behavior mm. um, and the fact that you have a buy-to-let tribe, a holiday-let tribe, an HMO tribe, um, a tax tribe, a finance tribe, etc., etc. You get the picture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and to cut a long story short, three or four years later, we had a look and my husband said, crikey, we've got over 10,000 members. Oh, wow. um, and then we realized that we had something, but mm. we didn't know what. Yeah, because I think that... Still quite early, you know, in in the infancy of the social web, um, and then my husband saw a way forwards to continue Property Tribes as a commercial entity um, by an advertising and sponsorship model, which you see today. Because mm-hmm. I think the thing is, as well, certainly around that sort of time, that time period, there were, I mean, certainly on the, the lending front, everything had changed overnight in terms of the regulation reboot and that type of thing. So it was perfectly timed even to set that up in terms of that was when a lot of let's say amateur investors needed that as support to understand exactly. what, what was truly going on from that point of view. And I think yeah. from, from that sort of perspective, I can remember going to, I mean, I started my own business back in 2008 after being made redundant, ironically enough. And one of the f- first things I actually was doing in terms of trying to meet other businesses was going to business networking events. And that was the real first time that I came across for example, people who were at that point um, offering themselves out of saying to people with regards to these, if you've got a buy to let, I can help you, this type of thing. Um, there was one example, I went to an event down in Bournemouth and it was um, in the room, the guy who was presenting didn't really realise that there was me as a mortgage broker, there was a solicitor in the room and there was an accountant. And so that's a set of a very bad joke. Yeah, it is really. Um, <laughs> but, but the guy did the presentation, he was really great in terms of delivery mm. but what he was proposing were systems that worked three years prior to when we were all attending the meeting and that was that was my kind of like thinking right okay well this this, this is one of the reasons i think we wanted vanessa on today mm. was to talk about standards vanessa in in the property world um particularly on the, maybe on the buy to let side because i think you've got some strong opinions on that well i, I certainly have and well let's hear them <laughs> um, i i think you know Nick and I, Nick, my husband, my wonderful husband, um, we, we totally subscribe to education. Mm. It's absolutely imperative if you're going to navigate all the challenges that face landlords and also to supply a, a safe and compliant home to your tenants. So we totally 100 subscri- you know, percent mm. subscribe to it. And in fact, it's the reason that we started Property Tribes or one of the reasons, because we felt that landlords needed support and education. And I'm talking about legitimate education, and by that I mean from people with actual experience and without any kind of um, bias or agenda behind it. Mm -hmm. So what I love about community-generated landlord conversation, advice, awareness, education, is because... It's simply people sharing for the the sake of sharing. And it's very, very healthy. You'll get lots of different views. You can take them all on board. You can try them on and you can think, well, actually, that's how I feel about this particular thing. That's how I'm going to run my business. So it's a very healthy format to learn and grow. Um, What I have an issue with is what I call illegitimate education education. which essentially promises 
get rich quick. So you can be a millionaire in a year mm. with no money. Um, I know that to be totally, totally untrue. And I regard this kind of um, so-called wealth creation education, uh, I regard it as a danger to consumers. It's totally unregulated. People can make whatever claims they like. They never substantiate them. Um, they can tell you they're worth 20 million and people seem to believe every word they say. And then they sell these very, very expensive courses, often the deposit on a property. Uh, and, and these courses are, are targeted to vulnerable and naive people who are sometimes in desperate situations and just looking for some way out. Mm -hmm. And these people will, will spend their last penny to go mm. on the course or even go even further into debt with loans and borrowing money from family. And every week I'm contacted by people who have been sucked into this and who have, have lost everything. But most importantly, they lose hope mm. because it's all made to sound so easy. And when they can't make it work, they feel an immense failure. And that has driven some people to even contemplate, you know, taking their own lives. And I've spoken to these people and, and I hear their stories firsthand and it makes me even more determined to, to try and get this, seg this sector regulated. And um, I'm hoping that my, my current court case, which is known fairly widely in the property community, I'm really hoping that that's going to be um, not only a platform for awareness, but but also for for positive change. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I can confidently say that Stu and I totally support you there, um, uh, Vanessa, because we see this a lot. Uh, you know, we're, Stu and I are regulated financial advisors. Um, you know, yeah. we can't we can't put the kettle on without filling a form in. Okay, and I'm fine with that. That's the price of of doing our job. We're on LinkedIn regularly, and we see um, an explosion of these courses that you talk about. Um, and, and we all joke about it behind the scenes because we know the reality. It's not that easy at all. Um, um, and there is no such thing as easy money. Um, and it's made to look easy. Um, what I often do, it, it, companies' house can be your best friend sometimes. <clears throat> so when you see these gurus out there talking about whatever, um, you know, a cursory um, stroll around companies' house will soon tell you that they're not worth 20 pence, let alone 20 million. Um, but what does worry me is that the consumer doesn't look into that detail. You know, we're trained to look in for things like that to, to tie two ends together. But effectively, it's kind of our, our role is to do due diligence on, Correct. The, on clients, uh, yeah. even, isn't it? That's uh, the thing. And, and we do, and, yeah. and we turn clients down because of that, yeah. because we don't like what we see. But the consumer tends to buy the headline and not the bottom line. Um, and that's why you see these rooms packed with hundreds of people in them. Um, um, and it creates a bit of a, an aura. Um, I'd imagine I've never been to one, but I'd imagine it's, it's very exciting. Um, there's probably loud music being played. It probably looks very slick. Um, but and you probably get the same things in, in, the, in the crypto world where people are talking about it and it's easy to do. Be a crypto millionaire. Just do what I do. Um, but how do we fix it, um, Vanessa? What, who, who's, whose doormat does this land on? The regulator, the Bank of England, the government? It can't be you. <laughs> well, no, I mean, literally at the moment, as we've said, that it's only really community-generated due diligence and commentary that is the very, very fine line between people losing money, often 
you know, their pension pots to mm. some of these schemes. Um, so some of these schemes are £100,000 to get on board with, abstru- absolutely astronomical amounts of money. Um, I, 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 I don't really know the answer. Um, it falls between a number of, of different stools, if you like. Um, I, I, I think the government needs to, to look at this because I, I believe that billions are lost. Um, and that's just the financial loss. On top of that, we've got the emotional heartache, stress, anxiety, mm-hmm. despair that people suffer as a result of realising they've been duped. Um, so I, the government's got to look at it. Maybe the FCA have to come in. Maybe there has to be some, um, you know, what I would like to see, and I know you'll agree with me, is that before anybody can sign up on these courses, they have to go through a regulated mortgage broker to see if they even qualify for buy-to-let mortgages or that they have the deposit. Because if they don't, it's a complete waste of their money. Yeah, I think the thing is as well, it's like whenever I personally get any sort of new inquiries from anybody looking to get involved in buy-to-let is just saying, right, before you do anything... You surround yourself with people and expertise. So effectively, you speak to an accountant before you ever entertain the idea of doing it to find out the taxation point of view. Solicitor, likewise, on the legal front, and then have a broker that you trust from that point of view. Because I think the the mistakes can be so easily made um, by people. And I think certainly from the perspective of when people used to invest in buy-to-let in the past, let's say pre-2008, it was mainly because people might have been given failing endowments during the 80s and 90s that they then wanted to see property as their pension pot effectively and a lot of people did do that and they did it very well but i think the problem is now what you've got is that over time you've had other things happen like people can access their pensions much earlier now than they could have done and easier than they could in the past i think that the risk is people leave their common sense at the door sometimes because they want to achieve Mm -hmm. you know we have created a society that is uh, aspirational um, we always want what somebody else has got and we want to get it as quick as possible um, and I think that can lead to p- poor judgement as well from the consumer so it goes back to what I think you said earlier Vanessa we've got to get some better education in here early doors not not yes. after the event before way yes. before yes indeed and you know it's interesting these, these get rich quick, quick gurus um, you know part of their strategy is to discredit me discredit property tribes as a source of due diligence say that um, you know I'm jealous of their wealth and success um, and, and actually I, I, I'm not at all I, I live a very very happy life with with my my husband and, and my cats and my motorhome and to be honest you know as you get older you also realize that uh, you know true wealth is happiness and peace of mind and good Mm -hmm. health it's not all about trinkets and driving a ferrari and living in a mansion Mm -hmm. Um, those kind of things come with their own set of anxieties Um, and it's it's you know we so it's just a revolving door of these people and they all eventually go bust or disappear um and then the next one pops up it really is like whack-a-mole yeah uh, it's very difficult uh, and they've got such a far reach now with social media you know they can get onto youtube instagram tiktok uh get hundreds of thousands of followers very quickly and reach very impressionable and naive minds mm-hmm. um and 
you know, it, it, I, 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 sometimes, you know, I, I'm, I'm in tears when people contact me and tell me their stories of, of, you know, they lost their mother's inheritance or they've lost their entire pension or, you know, just terrible, terrible things that happen to people. Mm. And, you know, I, I strive to, to help where I can, um, but it's got to be a community effort and it's great to see more and more people um, speaking out against it, more and more people joining in. But of course now um, there's evidence that these wealth creation gurus try and shut down mm -hmm. uh, this commentary with, with um, you know, litigation mm -hmm. uh, and starting defamation and harassment cases of which obviously I am one of the defendants, but that they can use their very deep pockets mm. to, um, to shut down commentary that actually is in the public interest and protects the consumer. Very much, and I think I think awareness is really, really important here because your point there about people, you know, do lose money. People doesn't matter whether it's property, pension, Bitcoin. They become embarrassed by it, and they don't talk they about do. it. Um, and that's that's half the problem. Awareness is, is is a massive part of this. So I think some sort of cross-party community regulator um, forums like yourself and ESSA working together, some sort of task force to get this, you know, out there more. Uh, and prevent people from making similar mistakes. I don't think it's a bad thing at all. No, definitely not. Definitely not. So, th with regards to um, the situation that you're working through at the moment, then Vanessa, you you understand you've got a crowdfunding um, system running at the moment for that. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes. Um, well, I, I was served with High Court papers um, for defamation and harassment of a well-known. Uh, shall we call him property guru? Because that's really the best way to describe him. He has very, very swarms of devoted followers that believe they're going to be a millionaire in a year with no money, even if they're on benefits, living at their parents' house. Literally, <laughs> I hear them saying this. Um, he started this case against me in September last year. Um, as you'll be aware, defamation litigation is the most expensive mm type of litigation there is and my legal bills are estimated to be in the region of about 650,000 <laughs> if it goes all the way to court um, and so far um, it's a very slow process going through the, the whole legal uh, due process um, but my crowdfunding has raised, um, I can have a quick look at it today. Yeah, it give us a live time? number. Yes, it's uh, at 38,220, okay. um, which is incredible. And I'm so immensely grateful to every single person that has contributed because it's helped me enormously to retain legal advice um, mm -hmm. and have a lawyer and a barrister. Uh, I've actually put in a, probably about 17,000 of my own money on top of that. Mm -hmm. And we're still very near the beginning of the process so my barrister bills alone are estimated to be about 50,000. So I, I'm, I'm fighting this with the help of the property community. <clears throat> and I've had immense support even from people like um, Ben Beadle, the CEO of the NRLA. Mm -hmm. I've recently done an interview with um, Maxine Fothergill, who's the immediate past president of Arla. Um, some of the biggest hitters in the UK property industry have contacted me and offered their support and donated privately, anonymously um, to my fund. So um, I, I feel that, I, that, that the property community has my back, which has mm -hmm. helped me because I've been through absolutely massive anxiety over this, 
you know, when you get a court document, and my particulars of claim were 35 pages, when, when you get that, it's terrifying, it's scary. I've got a very, very good lawyer who's, who's brilliant and very compassionate towards me, and he's helped me through, and also my husband as well. But, you know, I stand to lose... You know, I, I, I might have to sell my properties to, to fund this case, which is a terrifying prospect for me because I've worked my entire life to build them, to support support me in my old age and my husband. So it, it's a very frightening time, but it's I've had a lot of support and it, 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 I can't tell you how much it has assisted me in, in getting through this. Uh, Vanessa, I think what you just said then is um, is all very valid, and I think it's very important that the industry um, sort of comes together on this one and not not leave you out there on your own as a martyr. I think you know lenders, uh, professional bodies mm-hmm. should support this. This is a really big thing for the industry; it affects all our credibility, yeah. um, and ultimately, it affects the consumer. And that, that's why we have regulation. We've got more regulation coming in next year, but sometimes I think the regulation kind of, you know, it, it's a sledgehammer to hit a nut. Um, we, it doesn't address the right things all the time. And I think, um, you know, we'll happily support you um, here and we'll, we'll put a link up to your um, crowdfunding um, yeah, when we, when we, when we put, the, the, put the podcast out. But I think that's probably a good time to end it there as well on, 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 on that subject because it is so important. Yeah. That's great. Well, thank you so much for um, having me on the podcast um, and for the great questions. And, um, you know, I think it's so good that regulated mortgage brokers and advisors like yourselves are are adding your voice to mine. Mm -hmm. Because I know if I say to you, could you buy a, a property with no money? I, I know your answer is going to be <laughs> no. one word. We, we we have the odd phone call from clients, and it's a very brief phone call. Um, <laughs> uh, so it's uh, a polite uh, one, <laughs> uh, very polite and professional, but it's short. <laughs> um, but listen, look, v- Vanessa, thank you so much for your time. Uh, really appreciate that. Um, we wish you all the best, um, and we'll keep a, a close eye on on what goes on um, in the future. Well, thank you both very much for your support. No, that's great. Thank you for coming on, Vanessa. That's great. Um, so that was episode 67 of the LM Experience, Martin. Brilliant. Great. A good so, one as well. Yeah, Not indeed. that not the others weren't. Well, of course. This was very good. Yeah. Yeah. We value everybody equally. Yeah. But if you'd like to come on to a future episode of the LM Experience, you can do so. All you need to do is contact us through our Twitter feed, which is at the LM Experience, and we will be back with more episodes soon. Brilliant. Thanks, Vanessa. Thanks, Drew. Thanks for listening, and please subscribe and follow us on Twitter. And remember, there ain't no party like a highly regulated mortgage party, and your home may be repossessed if you do not keep up repayments on a mortgage or any other debt secured on it.